If there was no spiritual consequence to how you manage love and sex, and there isn't, how would you manage them? What sorts of things would you want to experience? The Bible does not hold a single or consistent opinion about what a moral sexual relationship actually is. And honestly, who gives a fuck what the Bible says anyway? Almost half of evangelicals don't believe their own religion's rhetoric about sex. And that, to me, is very significant. Legal contracts and gold bands don't make a relationship healthy, give it longevity, or make it exclusively moral. This is me. This is the way that I think. This is the way that my emotions line up. This is how my brain navigates this thing called love. Forget everything that you learned from the pulpit and start examining this for yourself. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And, and it's, it's time to get unbound. We have arrived at episode 69. <laughs> and the conversation is about to come to head. Uh, ahead. It's about to come to ahead, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And this time around, we're going to be talking about reclaiming your sex life and tearing down some of the taboos that evangelicals are taught about it. We're not going to beat around the bush with this one, folks. We're going to dive into it face first and have some fun. But before we get into any of that, a couple of really, I don't know if I want to call these good stories. And it's its They're... its kind of a weird thing with the Christians behaving badly really? thing. There's nothing good that comes out of this thing. No. But... But there's a definite air of vindication yeah. to this first story that I like a lot. So let's just get right into it. What do you have for us tonight? Uh, I got a couple of stories. They're just stories. They're not good. They're not bad. They're just really just, ridiculous. This is who these people are. Yes. Deal with it yes. and laugh. And, you know, since I was an evangelical Christian, I can kind of see where the thinking comes from, obviously. Well, yeah. We both and it's can. like... Oh my goodness, why did I ever think this way? Well, um, that's the point, is yeah. reaching a point where you actually do question why on earth did I ever think this way. It certainly does beat being afraid of going to hell all the time, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. Oh yeah. Definitely. If Jesus existed, he'd be continuously face palming over the words and deeds of some of his followers. There is no situation where they will not seize on exactly the wrong thing to say or do. People for the American Way is an organization founded by Norman Lear in 1980 as a direct response to the Christian right's moral majority. One of the ways in which they do this is with their group, Right Wing Watch. This is a group dedicated to shining a light on the words and deeds of conservatism, both religious and political. What they do is post clips of preachers and politicians they watch taken from their own social media and internet TV shows. Most of the content they cover, of course, can be described as hate speech that violates YouTube's guidelines. So YouTube took Right Wing Watch's videos down and rejected their appeal. Of course, a lot of the conservatives' own videos are still up on the site, so not sure what that says about YouTube's guidelines. Well, I have a good idea. It just goes back to the same things that we've talked about before. These people get special treatment. Yes. They're treated like a bunch of petulant toddlers. 
They're allowed to say whatever they want to say, and the grown-ups just kind of walk past without mm. acknowledging what's going on. Right. And it's a good way to deal with a toddler, but this is a big societal problem, and it may not be the best way to deal with this. But that's precisely why, in the context of Right Wing Watch, it's against their terms of service. But in the context of that creator's own channel, mm. all of a sudden it's okay because it's protected speech because it has to do with religion. Yes. Ugh, crazy. It is. It it's, is. It's bad so shit. Crazy. But that's the way that it is. And they get away with this all the time. They do yeah. the same thing all the time. And we see other examples of this sort of thing where the content is posted by one it stays up. I see this on Facebook a lot. Oh, yeah. The content stays up on the original page, but then when it starts getting shared around, all of a sudden it violates community standards. Right. It's a huge double standard when it comes to what's acceptable and what's not on the platform. It's crazy. Well, cue Rick Wiles, who couldn't be happier about this turn of events. I suspect there will be layoffs very soon inside the organization because there's no platform for them to spew their lies and propaganda, Wiles declared, clearly unaware that YouTube is just one of several social media platforms Right Wing Watch uses to share their content. So their writers, their editors, all the people that they had working to smear us in other ministries, what are they going to do? I suspect they're going to lose their jobs this week. Isn't it awesome how these people revel in other people's misfortune? What part of the gospel message covers that, Rick Wiles? The part about loving your neighbor or turning the other cheek? I'm confused. Where's your thinking here? It's awful. Of course it is. He goes on to say, Let me make this very clear today. Jesus Christ shut down Right Wing Watch, not YouTube. This is an example of God working through unsaved people at YouTube to carry out his vengeance against those who would attack and smear his servants. So I didn't have to lift a finger against Right Wing Watch. I think they'll disappear in the coming weeks and months. There's no purpose for them now. It does make me wonder what his reaction was to the news that, mere hours after his broadcast, YouTube reacted to the outrage and protests on social media, looked at the content again, and reversed their decision. Hmm. Hmm. Doesn't look like people are going to be losing their jobs anytime soon. No, it doesn't. Nah. Did Jesus change his mind? Will Rick Wiles apologize? I won't hold my breath. Next, in how do you get through doors with a head that big news, so-called prophet Chuck Pierce says that he knows why the pandemic happened. Oh, why did it happen? It was so God could have a closer relationship with him. With just him. Just him. I didn't intend for this to be another prophet story, but they just keep coming up. I guess it's a new Christian trend. No, nah, they're just getting away with it more within their own niches. This is nothing new. This, yeah. It's just more visible now in the advent of things like social media. Yeah, But there true. is nothing new about this. True. Last week, he was on Facebook with another prophet, Cindy Jacobs, talking about a conversation they had back in January of 2020, in which she said he would not be traveling this year. Ooh. Ooh. Sounds prophetic spooky. to me. Not... <laughs> January. Yeah, January. We we knew at that point that there was a storm brewing. Yeah. We were suspicious. Yeah. Well, there were things happening. I mean, I can even remember saying something on this show about, well, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal if you haven't been to Wuhan lately. Yeah. But, you know, a couple of weeks later, we knew a little different, didn't we? Yeah, famous last words. Mm -hmm. Let's see. He goes on to say, my whole life has been traveling 
500,000 miles a year. I said, I have no idea how God will do this. How in the world will God do this? And I have watched him, starting in March, do that word. Do that word. Do that word, baby. (laughs) I believe it has been a year and a half of me being redone. The Spirit of God said it to me this way. Have you ever thought that I stopped the whole world just for you to form a new relationship with me? And I really knew right then, this is about me and the Lord and what he is trying to do in me and how we're forming a new relationship. So God stopped the world to melt with you? Ugh. I mean, <laughs> That's gross. <laughs> there's, there's, there's so much that's gross about both of these stories, the attitudes behind them. Oh, it's not yeah. even funny. This I, arrogance. Forming a new relationship. I don't think the Joker and Harley's relationship is as toxic as the one between Jesus and Chuck Pierce, if this is even remotely true. <laughs> and it's not. No. Let's just make sure we're clear on that. No. The questions this brings up in my mind are many. Why does it have to be about him? Why is he so important? Does this really make the loss of millions of people worldwide worth it? No, it fucking doesn't. Yep. Agreed. Totally agreed. Yeah. As Hemet Mehta says in his article on Friendly Atheist, even if we're assuming this is true, Pierce isn't making God look good for anyone who might be on the fence about faith. His statement will do far more damage than good. Which is true of anything that these people say when it's heard from a perspective of someone who isn't conditioned to just accept what they say is true. Right. And that's why these people still have the followings that they have. It's like we were talking about last week. Right. They know who their audience is. And any good marketer knows who their audience is. So Mm -hmm. these people have found theirs. And that's how they keep going. Even with the rest of the world looking on and laughing, even with people within their own ranks looking on and laughing, they're still successful because there's a market for every kind of content out there. And there's a market for every kind of thought process out there. You can convince people to believe anything and think anything if it's presented the right way and you're dealing with the right type of person. You can get them to believe pretty much anything. I mean, this, this was like mystery narcissist theater tonight i mean (laughs) yeah both of these stories i mean just the arrogance that oozes out of both of them yeah but it goes back to a couple of the concepts that we've talked about before on the show and the way that these people think and again how they get away with saying all this stuff you know people have a tendency the ones that don't care what they have to say have a tendency to ignore them and the ones that fit their demo hang on their every word. Right. So they really don't care that 99.9% of everyone out there thinks that they're lunatics. As long as they've got this small niche following that still hits their Patreon. Yeah. You know, That's it. What do they care? What do they, what do they care about the rest or what anyone else thinks of them? They've still got this following and they will always have people listen to their bullshit and don't see it for just this narcissistically fueled diatribe yeah. that it is. Yeah. That's and that's not going to change anytime soon. No. And that's why the uh the point counterpoint is necessary and that's why resources like this show are necessary so people learn how to dissect what they're doing. Right. Look at it from the proper perspective and draw their own conclusions as to whether or not it's right or wrong. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that our messaging isn't biased here. It is. But I also think that 
there's a difference between someone making a YouTube video and just expecting people to believe them and two people sitting at their dining room table making a podcast that has been properly vetted so that you know that what you're hearing is the truth. And yeah, we've made mistakes. We've made a couple of mistakes on this show along the way. And we always come back and we say, hey, you know what? We figured out that this wasn't right. So we wanted to make sure that you guys knew that this is what we found out so that we maintain that level of credibility. When you really and honestly have the truth and you're delivering the truth, then you're committed to that sort of thing. You hold yourself accountable. There's no accountability among these people. Most of them don't have a church organization that they're tied to unless it's one that they have created themselves. And there's a reason for that. Because as nutsy cuckoo as some of the things were that I saw in the AG, the AG still wouldn't endorse a lot of this. Right. So there is that. And like I said last week, it's encouraging when people within their ranks stand up and say, yeah, no, we can't agree with this. Is it enough? Well, no. And that's why there are resources like this show and many, many, many others out there like it. And that right there is why we do what we do and why so many other shows, so many other resources out there are doing what they do. Because if there's one thing that the book gets right, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free, or as we like to say around here, get you unbound. Mm -hmm. And just before we get into our main topic, we just want to let you know that our Patreon is up at patreon.com slash unbound podcast network. If you have a fiver you can throw our way, then by all means, visit our page and make a pledge. You'll be glad that you did. If you can't, tell someone new about the show this week. Get other people involved. Help the people that need to be in front of this resource. Get in front of it. It's the best way to spread the word about us. And it's the number one way that podcasts gain popularity is by people talking about them and sharing the content. So if you can do that, share your favorite episode, leave a five-star rating, leave a comment, leave a review. That will help us out tremendously. If you have the means to support us financially, fantastic. If not, then there is a litany of things that you can do to help us out. And we're glad that you're there. Keep coming back. Keep getting what you need. Help us continue the point counterpoint. Give if you can and support us in any other way that you can. If money is not something that you have to spare right now, you'll be helping us out a lot. You'll be helping other people get and stay unbound. Okay, this is going to be a fun one tonight. Let's just get right into it. Now, I'm going to preface my comments in this episode with a little disclaimer. I'm speaking from the standpoint of an ex-evangelical, very exclusively heterosexual, biological, middle-aged male. We won't say much tonight about anything related to things we haven't experienced or don't really understand. That means our comments are going to gravitate more toward heterosexual relationships than anywhere else. I've never been gay. I've never been transgender. My basic sexual orientation and gender identity are as traditional as they come. So that's the jumping off point that I'm starting from. I do also have some very untraditional views in certain areas, and I'm going to be a bit more specific about this now than in episodes past. And I'm a little nervous. I'm not even going to lie. I'm a little bit nervous about some of the stuff we're going to talk about. But, you know, I think that if the whole idea of this show is getting unbound, that means getting unbound emotionally, mentally, thinking differently than you've thought before about certain things. So yeah, I'm approaching this with a little bit of trepidation. 
but I think that we can certainly find some commonality. If you are gay, transgender, gender fluid, pansexual, demisexual, etc., and would like to enlighten us and our listeners to how this subject pertains to you, particularly in a post-religious life context, contact us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com and let us know that you're out there and that you want to talk about this. I'm always up to learn more, and I'm sure our listeners would agree. And I personally would love to produce content on this subject that covers as many bases as possible. I also want to be substantive, accurate, and honest. That means the meat of the messaging will have to come from you. So if you're up for it, contact us. We want to talk to you, and we want you to have a voice on this too. We think it's important. So hopefully, as we go, that little disclaimer answers the question of why there wasn't more commentary on the LGBTQ side of this before we even get started. So with that in mind... There are differing views about sex and what is quote-unquote allowed in sexual relationships, even among evangelicals. Focus on the Family actually manages to endorse freedom of sexual expression in one sentence. Then they insert a very conspicuous caveat and negate what they just said entirely in the next thought. They start out with this little quote, Where there is love, there's liberty, because God has given a husband and wife the privilege to define the uniqueness of their sexual relationship. No one else has the right or authority to tell them how to behave in the bedroom as long as their actions don't violate scripture. And there's that caveat right there. And it's up to all kinds of interpretation. And now I was impressed right up to those last three words, but then they turn around and tell us that oral sex is okay. And... Anal isn't because anal has a homosexual context. Well, no, it really doesn't, at least not in an exclusive sort of way. Just because it may be presented that way in the Bible or alluded to, not even necessarily dealt with directly, it's alluded to in the Bible. But that doesn't make the opinion that this is right and this is wrong correct. The crazy part is that there are loads of evangelicals out there who like a little thing called pegging. To give the Reader's Digest version of this for those not in the know, pegging involves anal penetration of a man using a vibrator or a dildo. If any of those terms are fuzzy for you, Google is your friend. I fully expect that there could be evangelicals listening who are trying to decide to get out who have no clue what any of this actually means. But there are plenty who do. I'll also refer to an article on Huffington Post titled What I Learned from Conservative Evangelical Sex Message Boards by Kelsey Burke, wherein the author chronicles her research on this very subject. To be honest, I was once again surprised. I was literally flabbergasted to learn that there are evangelical communities out there that revolve around this particular subject. But the simple truth of the matter is that there are some kinky Christians out there. And despite admonitions by organizations like Focus on the Family, there are apparently plenty of people out there who like to explore various kinks with the running caveat that these things occur between married heterosexual people, and pegging is one of them. Now, I'm going to refer you to the article if you want to get a real, pardon the pun, but in-depth look at what this actually is and the way that people in evangelical context talk about these things but honestly 
as I read through some of it, it really didn't seem any different than any other group of people talking about the same subject. There wasn't a whole lot of Jesusing going on in the conversation because this was about these people, shared experiences, and I was actually impressed at how little preachiness there was about it. Right. It was just, this is what happens in our bedroom. Let's talk about it a little bit more. So I actually think that it's a good article to look into, but I'm not going to get too far into that subject right now. I just thought that it was interesting. Mm. I, I learned this completely by accident, and it's like, well, there's got to be more. There's got to be more Christian communities out there that deal with other things too. And there are. We're, we're not going to get too far into that. Suffice it to say that there are evangelical groups out there that are dedicated to pretty much every kink there is. And they look at it from their own proprietary perspective. But they still look at a lot of these things as being legitimate activities that can be performed between two married people. Right. So, you know, the baby steps in the right direction here. <laughs> you know, get get rid of the you have to be married and it has to be a man and a woman thing and you've actually got something there. But, you know, I'll take this. Mm. I'll take I'll I'll take knowing that some of them actually think this way. And I can also say with confidence that once again, the environment that I was in dealt with this in as good a way as possible when you're dealing with it from the confines of evangelical thought. But these are some of the things that I learned growing up in my more formative years about this particular topic. For starters, the whole saving it for marriage and it only being a heterosexual thing was a Catholic thing too. I could remember being taught this stuff when I was really, really young. Yeah. Long before I even had much of an inkling of what sex was, I understood that people had two parents, that one was dad and one was mom, and that one was a man and one was a woman. We learned about Adam and Eve way, way early on, and it was just drilled into us that this is the right way and that you shouldn't be doing certain things before you were married. That I mean, I think in the context of second and third graders, it's referred to more as making babies. But the messaging is still there. I can remember having conversations with my youth pastor about this, especially in the months or so leading up to when I wound up getting married. And one of the running themes in these conversations, at least in the circles that I moved in, was that when it comes to your marriage relationship, your sexual relationship within marriage, pretty much anything goes. And for the stuff that's more controversial, you just take a don't ask, don't tell approach to it. You don't overshare. You don't just tell people about the things that you're involved in and expect them to just accept it and tell you that it's okay. If it's not okay with them, well, you know, that's, that, that is what it is. But in the context of your relationship, there was really nothing that was off limits. And that was what I was led to believe, even when I was close to getting married and was thinking about this stuff very actively as a young person. And I was young when we got married. I was 21 and you were 23. Right. So very, very young for making the decisions and making the promises that we made. And that's going to come up in a couple of minutes, too. I was taught that oral sex was okay. I can remember there being a... Uh, not really a sermon. It was just a talk during youth group about some of this stuff. And 
we had been given the opportunity to write questions on index cards. And our youth pastor, he, he did an actually really good job of going through all of them and some of the questions that came up. I don't think that, uh, I don't <laughs> think that they were asked for the right reasons, but he stepped up. He really did. And he answered a lot of those questions really well. And one thing that I remember um, distinctly about that talk was someone bringing up the concept of oral sex and us being told that it just like with anything else, the marriage bed is undefiled. You want to do that. It's just fine. Switching gender roles was also okay with full consent. And that's where the whole pegging thing comes in. And that's okay. As long as it's between two married people and it's what they want to do. All falls under the same cover. Pleasure is pleasure. If you both like it, it's all good. And there's the verse, Hebrews 13, 4, the marriage bed is undefiled. As long as it happens between married people, what they do is their business and no one else's. And the little caveat there I remember from that talk also is just keep it to yourselves. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I think that that's good policy anyway. I mean, who's going <laughs> to sit around at the men's breakfast and talk about uh, being pegged the night before? So, in short, we were more don't ask, don't tell translation there if you're into things like pegging that's cool but it's your business we don't really want to know and i mean honestly i don't want to know the more i think about it the more progressive the church i went to actually seemed even though it really wasn't i don't know if that makes a whole lot of sense they seemed okay with an anything goes stance on sex within marriage but they still badmouth most ideas that they consider to be liberal in other areas yeah so um they hit the mark in some areas and they really dropped the ball in others. But in terms of how they approach this subject, I think especially my youth pastor did a good job of picking up the ball and running with it. Right. Another thing that I found as I was doing my research here came from the Baptist General Convention of Texas, who, quote, encourages all persons to uphold a lifestyle of biblical sexual values. Oh, wow. You have to know. I can't just let this go. <laughs> no. You have to know this. In our episode about what Christians are taught about sex, I went through a litany of ways the Bible outs itself on the subject of biblical sexuality. Right now, I want to zero in on just a couple, beginning with how the Bible in no way, shape, or form mandates monogamy as the only model of sexuality. As a general rule, the Bible dictates that sex be heterosexual in nature, but there are exceptions to this rule, too. Read the stories of David and Jonathan and Ruth and Naomi, and there is much to be read between the lines in both about same-sex romance. Ruth, quote, loved Naomi as Adam, unquote, and Jonathan's love was to David, quote, more wonderful than the love of women. Come on now. <laughs> Come on now. We know what this is about. You can skirt around it all you want, but we know what this is about. But... On the monogamy front, the Bible never endorses it as the only right or moral relationship model, not even a little. And I thought this was interesting. It comes from an NPR article that said, quote, if you're reading the Hebrew Bible, we might have polygamy again. We might not have only polygamy with wives. We might have polygamy with concubines and slaves. And if we're reading the New Testament, we would avoid marriage. Oh, and guess what? It's true. Read 1 Corinthians 7 sometime. It's absolutely true. No. Paul was not a fan of the concept of marriage no. at all. And you get a real good idea of what his stance was on this when you read that chapter in particular. But there are, just as the article suggests, 
other instances where this subject comes up and it's either dealt with directly or indirectly, but the underlying message here is, again, going back to the quote, the overwhelming opinion of New Testament writers is that marriage is a waste of time and that we shouldn't be doing it because we should be spreading the gospel. If you're married, you're totally distracted and not focusing on God. If we took the New Testament seriously, we would all stop being married. Only one problem with that, we'd also stop having sex because that's the whole point is that you don't have time to fuck. There's a world out there that's going to hell and you need to take care of that. And it's not far off, not at all. What they're saying here, the first part of this in particular is definitely true also. Polygamy, even polyamory, seem to play into a number of biblical sexual models. Jacob, Rachel, and Leah is a prime example. Jacob loved Rachel, but he gets tricked into marrying Leah and waits a total of 14 years to actually marry Rachel. It started with Rachel's father demanding seven years of service out of Jacob to be able to have her hand in marriage. And once that was done, he pulled a bait and switch and it was Leah that Jacob actually married and he didn't know. So the father says, oh, well, you still want Rachel? It's going to be another seven years. 14 years he waited to have the woman that he actually loved. Um, now, show of hands, who thinks that in that 14-year time period that Jacob and Rachel weren't fucking, like, the entire time? And show of hands, who thinks that Leah didn't know? An article on QueerTheology.com points out that Exodus 21.10 sets out some guidelines for how to treat your wives if you have more than one. Deuteronomy 21.15-17 governs inheritance amongst children in polygamous marriages. It's there. Open up the book and read it. Incidentally, the Exodus verse is from an infamous chapter about how to own slaves. So the contextual prerequisite there is a female slave whose master decides to marry her. Apparently, it was just ducky for a married slave owner to also marry his female slaves as long as he made sure that all of his, quote, wives were fed, clothed, and adequately fucked. It's in there. Read it. And in this model, everybody seems to know they're sharing a husband. It's right there. Now, there's a whole other conversation about consent going on here that we will table for later, but it's another significant question that comes up in the context of this. So the message I'm sending here is not that we should all be trying to marry multiple partners or turning polyamorous, only that this notion of only ever sleeping with one person forever isn't even presented as a universal moral mandate in the Bible. For that reason, we should only be thinking this way if we want to. Some want it that way. Others do not. Adultery is a huge problem in relationships. Nearly a third of men engage in sex outside their committed relationships, and more than a quarter of women do too. Those numbers fluctuate from source to source and sample to sample, but that's a good median. As a society, we still cling far too hard to a relationship model that is structured for a single partner dynamic. Marriage is a good idea from a number of legal standpoints, but legal contracts and gold bands don't make a relationship healthy, give it longevity, or make it exclusively moral. So let's talk just for a second about the whole saving sex for marriage thing. Let me just come out and say it. 
The notion of saving sex for marriage is silly. The only thing anyone should be saving sex for is their own preparedness to manage the responsibility and deal with the possible consequences of it. What are you doing to avoid unwanted pregnancies and STDs, and what about when those efforts fail? It's way more about exercising personal responsibility, using protection, and being proactive when things go wrong than it is who you decide to do these things with or how many somebodies you decide to do them with. The real question is, what can you personally handle? There's no need to save it for anything except readiness, and that is going to be my bottom line comment on that particular part of it. Saving sex for marriage usually is not the greatest of ideas. Mm -hmm. There are many, many more problems that can arise by just getting married because you want to fuck somebody. A lot more problems that can arise out of that than just doing what you're going to do, maybe getting your heart broken, hopefully learning a few things along the way, and figuring out what you really want so that when the time comes, if the time comes, and you decide to settle down with one person, you actually know what you want. And even better, you know what you don't. Mm. Or at least you have a good idea of what you don't. Now, most people out there are going to opt for one of two relationship dynamics. A single monogamous relationship, typically a marriage, but not always, and multiple monogamous relationships over their lifetime. Most people have a few monogamous relationships before getting married. It's the whole explore monogamy thing that we talked about a few weeks ago, um, where it's not necessarily about one person forever, just one person at a time. And that's the way that most people will conduct their entire sex lives. In this context, we're defining monogamy less as a single partner and more as a one partner at a time thing. The latter group is definitely larger. The ones that approach sex that way. It's a much larger group. So let's talk for a moment about a little thing called ethical non-monogamy and polyamory. There are those who don't find all of their emotional, sexual, and personal needs being met by just one person. And this leads people in a number of directions, most of which are non-monogamous. And non-monogamy usually falls under one of two categories, ethical or non-ethical, aka adulterous. In an ethically non-monogamous relationship, one or both partners have romantic encounters and or relationships outside the confines of the marriage or whatever the structure of their relationship might be. ENM and polyamory are used as interchangeable terms by many, while others see clear differences between the two. Some see ENM as being more casual. You date and fuck a lot, but you don't have long-term relationships with your partners. Polyamory, then, is more relationship-based with romantic partners at the center more than dates. People will always use the terms that make them most comfortable, and while some listening might disagree with me, I wouldn't argue with anyone about how they define their sexual relationship preferences any more than I would argue with someone about their gender. It's all very personal and open for personal interpretation. For the record, the above description is the one that I hold to. I see clear differences between the two. Still, each are valid relationship and lifestyle dynamics, no matter what you decide to call them. And since I brought up the topic of polyamory, we went through a little bit of a change in our relationship just not even two years ago at no. this point. It, yeah. was, it, was, um, it was a real turning point yeah. because we have been together for 
like almost 30 years. We had been literally together for 30 years because we got together in 89. Mm -hmm. And we had this conversation right before the world blew up, you know? And we got in my car and we had a very difficult discussion. Right. And certain things changed pretty radically about our relationship that day. And I'm not going to get into all the personal details of it because this is about you and I. It's not about the listeners. If they want to learn more about what the lifestyle entails, then there are all kinds of resources. And I am more than happy to answer questions on a personal level, one-on-one. But I think that most people out there have at least heard the term polyamory and know what it entails. So we decided that we were going to make some changes with our relationship. And, you know, I don't know what was going through your head at that point, but all I know is that you took it really, really, really well. (laughs) And I knew that I did not want our relationship to be over. Right. But I also knew that there were things that over the course of time I had learned about myself that Mm -hmm. needed to be addressed. Yeah. And needed to be addressed in a way that kind of stepped out of the boundaries of traditional relationships. And I can remember saying at that time, and people might disagree with me on this one, and it's okay, but I do remember saying at that time that I made promises and commitments to you when I was 21 years old that I honestly don't think that I should still be held to in my late 40s. (laughs) And I don't think that anybody should be making decisions like that when they're 21. No. No, they shouldn't. (laughs) <laughs> I think that people should wait till they're at least 30 before getting married. Well, I don't think that there's a magic age or magic there really number. really isn't, but... But, you know, think about the people that we know who got married in their early 20s and then got divorced and then got married again in their early or late 30s and right. those marriages worked. Right. There's no magic age. No. It has more to do with experience and knowing yourself a little bit better. Right. Because if I had known all of this about me then, and I should have, because there were warning signs that went back to my middle teen years, that this was the way that my brain was programmed to think about sex and relationships and love and falling in love and all of that. I've been in love a few times <laughs> since we got married. And it's always been disastrous because, number one, it's always been with people who, whether they looked at it this way or not, should have been off limits because they were married too. They were not in ethically non-monogamous situations or anything like that. So I wound up, you know, I wound up in in a couple of places where I really wished I hadn't been. Um, I feel like I made mostly good choices when it came to those situations, but I also know where my mind went with each and every one of them. And I just reached a point where it happened one time too many and it really tore me apart emotionally. And I said, okay, there's got to be a more productive way of dealing with this and taking control of it. That's where the big changes started taking place. And since that time, I've learned a lot about me and I've learned more about my emotions and the way that I think about things and deal with things and handle things in a very, very short expanse of time. I have a much clearer idea of who I am, the things that I need, the things that I want. And I'm going to be very, very uh, open and transparent here. It has not been the most 
smooth of rides so far. <laughs> no. And that is putting it very, very lightly. But I also understand that this is not something that I can, even if I wanted to, throw in the towel on. Because this is me. This is the way that I think. This is the way that my emotions line up. This is how my brain navigates this thing called love. And I'm not alone. I'm far from alone. The only thing that really bothered me about that was that I knew that this was not something that you were going to follow me into. And knowing that actually kept the conversation from happening for several years because it was at least two or three years earlier that my therapist suggested to me that this is something that I should be exploring. And it's like, how on earth do I go home and tell my wife this? Well, you know what? There are people out there that have, that have, um, I don't want to use the word term worse, but there have been other circumstances that people have had to have conversations over in their marriage that I would not want to have to be part of. You know, I made it very clear that I did not want us to be over. Right. But that there were certain things that I felt like I needed to explore before things came to the kind of crescendo that they did right before we had that conversation. Right. And I knew that you weren't going to follow me into it. But you also know and understand that you have all the same rights in the relationship that I have. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important part of this too. You can't be selfish about it to the extent that this is just a you thing. It has to be a relationship thing. It has to be something that you are capable of putting up with, with your partner. If you're asking your partner to put up with it from you, (laughs) it's just that simple. I, I mean, I know that there are different dynamics within polyamory where in some relationships it's expected that, she is going to be mono and that he can have as many partners as he wants. I think that that is really chauvinistic, misogynistic, and a lot of other istics that aren't very, uh, that aren't very positive. But I also understand that those are those relationships and that there are people out there who prefer that kind of dynamic. So I can't really disparage it either. I just, from, from my perspective, that's what it looks like. From someone else's perspective, it's like, oh, well, good. The pressure's off. I don't have to date, you know, that sort of thing. And it's the same thing in our relationship. The pressure's off. You don't have to date. But if you yeah. wanted to, then I, you know, I'm fully prepared for the day that I come home and hear about your crush. Yeah, right. You've heard about more than a few of mine. Mm-hmm. So I keep it in the back of my mind that this is something that you also have access to if you right. ever wanted to explore it. And the training ground for that is having partners who also have other partners or who at a very minimum have the potential to have other partners later on. There are many, many nuances to this and it can be difficult. I mean, jealousy is still a thing. Yeah. You know, we there's that part of us that always wants to have a certain level of exclusivity with the people that we love, mm-hmm. that we sleep with and all of that. We want that exclusivity and the jealousy thing does play into it. But I don't worry about the eventuality of you deciding that this is something that you want because I'm learning how to deal with those emotions with my other partners. Right. So that actually does go a long way toward training your brain to think in, in certain ways and to be less selfish about the things that your partner wants. But, you know, I've hinted at this before on the show and I've dropped little snippets and I think that those who have ears to hear probably figured it out by now, but now it's really out there. 
And whatever you think about this, just understand that whatever people decide to do with their lives, with their marriages, with their relationships, you don't understand what the dynamic is for those people until you've walked that all-important mile in their shoes. Shell and I have been together for a long time. Yeah. Three decades. We know each other well. She knows me well. And I honestly don't think that it was that big of a shock. No. No. No, it, it just really explained wasn't. a lot. It explained a lot, but there was there was some tension right well, before that. And I remember talking to my therapist about that too. And, you know, a good therapist never tells you, you should do this or you should do that. But during the course of conversation, it just became apparent to me that this was something that I needed to address head on. I needed to look myself in the mirror and see me for who I was and then come to you and say, this is who I figured out I am. Right. And what do you think? And I figured it's going to go in a couple of different directions here. Either there's going to be acceptance of it, there's going to be flat out rejection of it, or there's going to be some kind of middle ground that involves some kind of counseling right. for us to figure things yeah. out. So we were fortunate. It never got to the counseling stage of things. But it's also on the back burner for me that it could right. at some point come to that if certain things were to happen, you know, we don't we don't know the future. We have no idea what the future is going to look like and whether or not you're still going to be good with this five years from now. Right. You know, there is yeah. there is that. And if those tensions start to arise, then we have tools at our disposal that we right. can use to deal with them so that we can find that middle ground because my number one priority is always going to be keeping us together. Right. Because yeah. this thing that we have is solid and it doesn't matter who else comes and goes from the narrative. We have always managed to evolve in the same ways at about the same times. Right. So you haven't evolved into being polyamorous, but you have evolved into this place of acceptance that this is who your husband is. Yeah. And I am beyond grateful to be married to the person that I'm married to. Mm -hmm. And I would not trade what we have for anything, but there was this part of me that's been dormant for literally decades that is now awake and able to explore what's going on in those thought processes. And it is very liberating and it is very relieving yeah. to have this stuff out on the table now. Right. So a little deviation there. Now, you know, just a little bit more about the spider, probably more than you wanted to know, but that's okay. <laughs> Let's move into the subject of casual sex. It appears that lots of Christians also like booty calls and dick appointments too. Go figure. According to a new survey by Pew Research, half of self-identified Christians in America say casual sex is sometimes or always acceptable. The survey defined casual sex as sex between consenting adults who are not in a committed romantic relationship. Catholics were most likely to take this view at 62%. Though Protestants in the historically black tradition came in at 56% and mainline Protestants came in at 54%, more than one in three evangelicals also hold this view. That's 36%. Let me read that again. 36% of evangelicals say casual sex is sometimes or always acceptable. <laughs> A third of the people that you go to church with think this. Just ponder that for a couple of minutes. 
more than one in three honest evangelicals like to let their freak flags fly. Who knew? Oh, wait, 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 wait. I did. I always have. I remember saying to you um, long, long time ago, we were still in college. I remember saying that it felt like we were the only ones who were waiting. And yeah, we did. Yeah. We were our, each other's first everything, basically. Yeah. And it felt like we were the only ones. Yeah. And we were being provided example after example after example of how we were very likely in the minority. Yeah. For waiting. It's true. So, I mean, it really isn't news. It's just that you see more of it because it's on the internet now. Yeah. But there's more. A majority of self-identified Christians, 57%, say sex between unmarried adults in a committed relationship is sometimes or always acceptable also. That includes 67% of mainline Protestants, 64% of Catholics, 57% of Protestants in the historically black tradition, and a whopping, staggering, unfucking believable 46% of evangelicals, nearly half of the people that you go to church with, say it's okay to fuck someone if you aren't married to them, because most of them have. You know, I, I hate to burst your bubble, but hardly anybody waits for marriage, okay? It's just, it's not a thing that most people do. A lot of people do, we did. But a lot of people don't. Yeah. And a lot of the people that you go to church with didn't. It's that simple. That actually comes from a theist source. The second half of that article goes on to talk about how this is all such a horrible, terrible thing. It's from the gospelcoalition.org. But the Pew Research Study, I also have a link to in the show notes. So you can take a look at that, too. But I found that it was another jaw dropper. That's what I'm saying. I'm not going to keep saying that nothing these people do or say surprises me because I keep getting proved wrong every single week. Almost half of evangelicals don't believe their own religion's rhetoric about sex. And that to me is very significant. Yeah. So let's move along a little bit, talk about fetishes and kinks. Um, BDSM, I've had some recent exposure to. Not really experienced, just exposure. It's an odd little acronym because it kind of has some overlapping terminology. Right. BDSM stands for bondage and discipline, dominance and submission, and sadism and masochism. So all of these things that, uh, that fall under the cover of BDSM also run the gambit from almost vanilla type activities that are either non-sexual or barely sexual to stuff that, to quote the Bloodhound Gang that only Prince would sing about. So <laughs> there's stuff. There's lots of stuff. And again, it's not something that I've had a lot, a lot of experience with. But in the course of exploring Polly, I have had some exposure to it and I've learned a few things along the way. These are real niche types of activities and likes that, you know, some of it I just don't get. <laughs> And and some of it is like, oh, well, I never knew that that was the thing. Let's talk about this a little bit. Let's learn a little bit more about it. And as you go, you'll have the same kind of experience with it. If you start delving into this a little bit more, there are books, podcasts, all kinds of online resources, online communities. And I will leave a few little, uh, a few little Easter eggs in the show notes so that you can learn a little bit more about this because I'm kind of on the learning curve with it too and trying to discover a little bit more about this all the time. 
But I found this interesting. It was a quote from gotquestions.org. And it says, quote, the more extreme aspects of BDSM reek of Satanism and paganism and are definitely ungodly and perverted. And after reading that, I've never wanted to explore it more. (laughs) (laughs) Satanism, paganism. Well, you know what? I have a little bit of experience with both of those things. It also says in the article, the need to dominate and or be dominated in a relationship, whether sexual or non-sexual, may reveal a psyche in need of being redeemed by God through Jesus Christ. Translation, if this is something that you're into, you're fucking crazy. Mm. Well, all I have to say to that is, wives... Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the dom, a uh, savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. The need to dominate and or be dominated in a relationship may reveal a psyche in need of being redeemed. Oh, but wives, submit to your husbands. That's Ephesians 5, 22 and 23, and it is a very, very popular passage yeah. that is supposed to outline what a quote-unquote traditional marriage is supposed to look like. But all I really got from that is that Jesus is your daddy, Dom. So remember <laughs> that. In all seriousness, though, the Bible doesn't have much to say about the actual subject of BDSM, but... I assume that if it did, it would read like a poorly written John Norman novel. Now, you see, I I'm, I'm really debated over whether or not I was going to mention that because now I have this this picture in my head of some poor sod just coming out. This is like this past Sunday was his last Sunday at church. And now he's going to discover John Norman <laughs> and not know what the fuck he's getting into. <laughs> Okay. We all discover John Norman and not know what the fuck we're getting into. Especially if you discover him first on Mystery Science Theater, which right. is the first place that I learned about John Norman. Yes. And let's just say that the movie versions of his books don't really scratch the surface yeah. of what he gets into in these books. So that's all I'm going to say about that. If you've been out for a while, then by all means, check out some John Norman If you didn't know before tonight what BDSM stands for, you might want to get a little bit more educated before you try and dive into these books. There is one verse that I found a lot on the pro slash neutral side of the BDSM debate, and that being, should Christians be kinky? And that's 1 Corinthians 10.23, where it says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. And that comes from my one of my other favorite translations the new american standard all things are lawful but not all things are profitable until you put them on only fans <clears throat> oh that was bad spider bad spider bad, bad spider. spider all things are lawful but not all things edify so that's the other half of that verse and my question is edify who now i'm not going to get into a long-winded explanation of this except to say that bdsm relationships actually edify more often than they degrade that's in the nature of the kink and the trust and consent involved in it doms only have power because their subs give it to them it's way more balanced than it might seem from the outside but in the context of various types of kinks especially in the context of dominance and submission 
the more you learn about it, the more you understand how empowering it is for the people that are involved. Depending on how this thing manifests, regardless of how it manifests, there is a lot of balance there that someone on the outside looking in may not see or recognize. Right. So just keep that in mind as you explore this stuff. Don't close your mind off to any aspect of this because you have seen it painted in a negative light through sermons or youth group talks or anything like that. Forget everything that you learned from the pulpit and start examining this for yourself. If it kind of piques your interest, then look into it, learn about it. It's definitely worth at least learning about on an intellectual level, even if you never explore it as something that is part of your sex life. It's definitely worth understanding because you'll understand the people that are involved in various kink communities better when you understand how those dynamics work. So next on the agenda is a little thing called threesomes. Two things I know for sure here. There is absolutely nothing in the Bible about threesomes. That is very clear. There's I, I scoured the internet. I scoured a couple of online concordances using all kinds of terminology that may have brought me into, uh, into verses about that and came up with absolutely positively nothing. The other thing is that there is no possible way given what we know about people at that time, that this wasn't a thing. Like I've said many times before, people don't change that much. So if threesomes are a thing now, guess what? They were a thing then too. Can this possibly mean that God doesn't give a fuck how many people you fuck at once? I honestly don't see why he would. He seemed okay with both of Lot's daughters going for a ride on daddy, didn't he? Well, it happened at separate times. But let's just think about the connotation of this, okay? And God seemed to be okay with this. No one got smited for it. So when I thought about this a little bit more, I thought, well, you know what? It may not be directly covered, but could it be under the cover of the sins that are associated with places like Babylon and Sodom and Gomorrah? That could be part of it, but it was an all-encompassing hedonistic sexual revelry kind of thing, which I am certain had to at some point in some way and in many, many uh, varied circumstances involve something like this. Threesomes and maybe moresomes too. To be clear though, sex is best when it's one-on-one isn't just a line from a George Michael song. It's also the underlying message in everything the Bible says about sex. Still, the Bible flat out neglects to offer an actual opinion on just how many of your wives and concubines should be at the party at once. And I'll be honest, I do sometimes wonder how Jacob, Rachel, and Leah managed their little polycule when everyone was legit married and cohabiting. It definitely runs through my mind once in a while. So since we're talking about threesomes, why not talk about orgies? There are stronger opinions on this one in the Bible, but instances where it's mentioned are still very sporadic. It's kind of a diss in the book of Hosea, suggesting that it's the type of thing that only unsavory types would engage in. In Galatians, we're told that engaging in orgies will keep you out of heaven. And it's also kind of a diss in 1 Peter, where it suggests that only a filthy pagan would have this much fun. Yeah, it's true. Pagan is used as a pejorative in that, well, and in a lot of biblical contexts, the word pagan is used as a pejorative, but it's a direct pejorative in 1 Peter 4.3. 
so the Bible may not say a whole lot about it, but there are definitely verses that provide fuel to the argument that sex is supposed to be a one-on-one thing, that it shouldn't be involving an entire town. When you look at the situation on a whole, it's actually one of those things where there's a high level of consistency in the Bible too. The messaging about what sex is and how it should look is pretty consistent. It's wrong, it's prejudiced, it's completely fucked up, but at least it's consistent. And you can't say that about a whole lot of things in the Bible now, can you? Mm -hmm. So at least in this instance, there's a little bit of congruity. So getting away from what the Bible says about anything, because who really gives a fuck? Let's talk a little bit about safety and responsibility. And this is more a message to those of you who are just coming out of this, who maybe didn't get a very good sex education in your public school. Maybe at home, things like um, birth control, contraception, your responsibilities in a sexual relationship probably weren't discussed that much. So let's talk a little bit about things like condoms STD testing, etc. Yes, it's necessary. All of these things are necessary. Whether you've ever, if, if you're if you're coming out of evangelical faith, and you're just at the point where you're starting to get to know yourself as a sexual being, there are things that you also need to be aware of, and the risks that are involved with certain sexual behaviors is a big one. And that's where things like condoms and getting tested once in a while come into play. Because these things are necessary elements to sexual exploration, especially if you're going to have multiple partners. Never, ever, ever take anyone's word for it when they assert their sexual health. And conversely, don't ask anyone to take yours. Get tested. Even if you know it's going to be negative, get tested. And in most poly relationships, it's mandatory at various intervals that are discussed and laid out as part of the relationship dynamic. There are sometimes very specific intervals that people in various poly relationships will agree to that we're just going to do this. Like every three months, every six months, whatever it is, whenever someone brings in a new partner, we're just going to do this. So get used to the idea, get used to the idea of taking full responsibility for your sexual health and for the sexual health of people that you involve in your exploration of sex. It is very important that you maintain high levels of integrity when it comes to things like this and not shirk your responsibility because using a condom breaks the mood. Hmm. Well, guess what? There are ways to incorporate it so that it doesn't. Yeah. You know, there are all kinds of things that you can learn about this that actually make them a lot easier to deal with. Make them part of the process. Make them part of the dynamic. Just give them their place. And after a while, it's not going to be a big deal anymore. It's not going to have the jarring effect that it had on you in the beginning. Once you're in the flow of doing what you need to do to stay safe and still be able to explore the way that you want to explore. So we're starting to wind things down a little bit with this episode. I I like that we got to talk a little bit more frankly about this. I like that I got to tell a little bit more of my more recent story with this and that people know the spider a little bit better after. (laughs) When you think about your own sex life, what sorts of images run through your mind? I want you to not think about what your church or pastor 
have told you is right. I want you to, again, not think in terms of sin. If there was no spiritual consequence to how you manage love and sex, and there isn't, how would you manage them? What sorts of things would you want to experience? Who, if anyone, would you want to experience them with? Unless those things involve actions that are illegal and cause harm to others, stop judging yourself and let yourself think about and consider the kinds of things you would like to explore. Literally nothing is off limits as long as everyone consents. Although I will say this, please be safe with certain kinds of play. It may not be off limits, but there's some stuff out there that may sort of kind of be a little bit dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. So know what you're doing or have a good guide or have a partner who knows what they're doing, who can actually steer you into good experiences with certain things. And let's keep in mind that as evangelicals, you know, those of us who were in this and were in it for a while, we were taught to fear or at very least look with distaste upon our own sexuality. Sex itself is framed as dirty and sinful and we shouldn't and we're encouraged to not be so preoccupied with it. But when we start getting unbound from that sort of thinking, we also need to start looking with a more open mind at the kinds of things that are out there to experience and decide how we want to manage this part of our lives. If your plan involves finding one person and building a life with them and having only one partner for life, you know what? Go for it. If you feel like trying to have that kind of relationship will ultimately be difficult for you, don't try to pull it off simply because that's what you've been taught is right. You decide what's right for you, not the entire world, okay? Go out and live and experience things, especially sex, on your terms. And just so we're clear, sex does not have to be saved for marriage. The Bible does not hold a single or consistent opinion about what a moral sexual relationship actually is. And honestly, who gives a fuck what the Bible says anyway? Let's also try to remember that these rules were written by people who are all dead now and have no business telling you how to live your life, period. You can have sex with more than one person during the course of your life. You can have sex with more than one person at the same time threesomes, orgies, none of it is off limits. Just be safe. You can have multiple sex partners who all know about each other. You can cohabit with more than one intimate partner. And just to put a cap on all of it, all sex is fair game. Straight sex, gay sex, monogamous, non-monogamous, every kind of kink and fetish there is. Find your groove and indulge. But again, be responsible and grown up about it. Take responsibility for your actions and don't intentionally hurt people in the name of your own sexual discovery. And if there are things you think you might be interested in, but you want to learn more before just diving into them, you can find groups and communities that will help you learn all there is to know about every kind of fetish, kink, or even seemingly more vanilla sexual activities out there. There are books, videos, and podcasts that provide a deep dive perspective on them too. And I encourage you to seek out some of this content and listen to what your brain says when you hear certain things. What perks your ears up? What do you want to know more about? Catalog these things and learn about them. Educate yourself. Pursue the things that sound good to you. What kinds of concepts turn you on? 
for a change, just let your mind have a field day with this. Let it be free enough to think what it wants, not what it's been conditioned to accept and reject on religious terms or on moral terms that have been determined by anyone but you as they relate to consensual activities between adults. And... You know, that's actually a good point. Please keep in mind that nothing that victimizes or harms others can or should ever be looked upon as moral just because the concept, quote, turns you on. This applies to using sex for self-empowerment at the expense of another's feelings or emotions or their health, as well as more serious manifestations that cross legal lines or victimize or in any manner cause harm to someone else. Don't use people and don't hurt them either. These are good policies in all facets of life, but they are especially important to understand and maintain in the context of sex. Evangelicals are fed some really awful information about their roles in sexual relationships. As men, I think we need to be doubly careful about not letting those toxic principles follow us into our exploration of sex in our post-religious lives. Guys, that's a cushiony way of saying that women don't owe you anything. They don't owe you sex. They don't owe you attention. They don't owe you a relationship if you're a, quote, nice guy and treat them with respect. This sense of entitlement is an outgrowth of what your religion taught you about you. And it's time that you get unbound from it. Stop looking at it in terms of what you're entitled to because, well, dude, you're not entitled to shit. Let me just put it out there. You're not entitled to sex. You're not entitled to a relationship. If someone isn't into you, it's not their fault, and there's nothing wrong with them for not liking you. Got it? When you behave like this, you come across as desperate, egotistical, and self-absorbed. Let's keep it even simpler. It makes you look like a creep. It's not a good look for anyone, and you'll almost never get what you want behaving that way anyway. Did you have anything you wanted to add for the ladies by any chance? Mm Mm-hmm. And Spider already covered some of this, but for the women out there, you don't owe men anything. That's good enough to say twice mm-hmm. or five times. Oh, totally. 50 times. 500. Because, Keep saying yeah. it over and over and over again. You don't owe them your attention. You don't owe them your body. You don't even owe them your beauty. You don't mm-hmm. have to look a certain way. You don't have to be a certain way. You don't owe them children. You don't owe them anything. Nope. You can make your own choices. Sometimes that can be a scary concept if you've come out from a very conservative religious movement or a living situation where you were forced to obey. So spend some time with you. Figure out what you like. Figure out what you want. There is nothing that one or more consenting adults agree to that is off limits. Coming out of religion is a long process, Mm -hmm. and we shouldn't rush it. You need to take time to decide who you are and what you want, because it's all up to you as it should be. Yes, very, very well said. And I just want to add a little thought about the whole thing with looks and bodies and all of this stuff. Um, First off, to the men, if you're looking for a serious relationship with a woman, then get into a relationship with a person, not a body, because bodies change. Mm. People change too. I mean, people change pretty radically over time, too. But if you're getting into this just because this person looks good and you think that they'll be a good sexual partner or they'll look good on your arm at the next party, 
that's the wrong reason to pursue somebody. And as far as the, uh, the whole body positivity thing goes, all I can say is that there are people, men and women out there, who go for every kind of body type there is. Mm -hmm. So guess what? It doesn't matter what you look like. You're sexy to somebody. And there are people out there who are going to be attracted to you based on your looks alone. And it doesn't matter what you look like. That's men and women. But I think that women struggle with that more. Mm. So just understand that you are good enough. That what you have to offer is something that somebody out there wants. And if you're patient, you'll find the right somebody who strikes the balance between what they like to do with you and what they like about you. And most of that stuff is not going to be largely predicated on your bodily dimensions. Now, granted, there is the whole aspect of initial physical attraction that does definitely play into this. But again, everybody is somebody's taste. So never think that you're not good enough. There's somebody out there who wants what you've got physically, emotionally, mentally, intellectually. There is somebody out there who wants what you've got. So don't downplay what you have and don't look at yourself as not good enough. That's for the women and for the men who are listening mm-hmm. or wherever on that spectrum you right. actually fall. Mm-hmm. So you, you see you see where my mind goes because of the way that I've been taught to think about this. It goes for men. It goes for women. Okay, well, what about everything in between, how yeah. everybody else identifies? Regardless of how you identify, there is somebody out there who wants what you've got on all levels, not just physical. Mm-hmm. So as a last word on all of this, it's your life. It's your life. Live it your way. Enjoy the ride. Enjoy exploring this part of yourself, but please do it responsibly and not at the expense of someone else's feelings, health, or self-esteem. Sex should be fun for everybody. Live the way you want to. Don't judge anyone for having specific sexual likes, wants, needs, kinks, whatever. And that includes yourself. Remember, if it's legal and consensual, It's fair game. And there are other people out there who share your interests. Oh, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with wanting a more traditional model for your sex life either. If you want to wait until marriage, wait. If you only ever sleep with one person your whole life, it's fine. If sex isn't a priority to you and you're still a virgin at 50, no problem. Just don't think you have to adhere to certain models just because you grew up believing them or because the religion you're now rethinking taught them to you. If your religion is wrong about some things, there are probably precious few things it's right about. And since the Bible can't even seem to make up its own mind about what appropriate sexual behavior looks like, who even gives a fuck what it says about it? Just do what the people in your church do. Do what your, what your pastor does. Pick the model you like best Throw out any and all other messaging and run with it. After all, the only bits in the Bible that really matter are the ones that suit your needs. Your pastors and other spiritual leaders have taught you that repeatedly. Get comfortable with wanting the things you want and get around to the business of pursuing them. Experience things. Delve deeper into the ones you like. Indulge yourself a little. It's your life. And by all probability, it's the only one you'll ever get. So add a few bullet points to your sex life bucket list and explore. The ability to do that is one of the many benefits of living and enjoying a life that is intellectually, emotionally, and yes, sexually unbound. 
enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound.